Welcome to the Top 5 Comics Podcast, people talking about comics, pop culture, and events. With us today from the planet Thundera, we have Steve. This planet's crazy. Also with us is a dignitary from Ran. That's the planet with the hawk people and the guys with the jetpacks. Rob. Yeah, Than Ran? Ran and Thanagar? I'm sure Thanagar is where you're from. I think Thanagar is, is the place to be. Then Thanagar! Good, good but, job. Not Ran, but, but Thanagar. Hawk people. Yeah, I think he was actually searching for another Hanna-Barbera world and then totally forgot what the other... <laughs> if he got a paycheck, he'd be fired. Mm, that's true. That's true. No paychecks for anyone. Yeah. <laughs> I would like to have done the Thunder of the Barbarian world, but that is Earth. It is, surprisingly so, enough. you know, that would have just been weird Earth. Which is... That's 1989? No, 1998? I can't remember what year it was supposed yeah, to be. Yeah, there was a meteor that passed by. Yeah, the screwed the, cracked it, cracked the moon in half, and screwed up Earth. Yeah, which totally, actually, not not too far outside of the realm of possibility. Yeah, except for light, lightning swords. You know. Well, magic. Yeah, yeah. Ukla, hard to. It's like a Chewbacca, but not a Chewbacca. It's, it's weird. That'd be be like a Bigfoot yeah. was like, I'm going to start living with the normal people because everything's crazy. I guess it could happen after the Earth, you know, after the Moon is is cracked. That's it. Yeah, maybe that's where all the magic is. It's inside the Moon. Oh, so not actually cheese up there, but magic. Yeah, nice. You crack it in half, and things go to hell on Earth. But you get magic. Woo! <laughs> oh my God! Oh, welcome to Top of Comics Podcast. Uh, today we're going to be doing episode number ninety-four. <laughs> Ding-ling-ling-ling! Alright. Uh, Book-wise, uh, we'll be doing the... Uh, or reviewing? Reviewing? Yeah, okay. Uh, X-Men Blue, number one. Nightwing, uh, number 19. Rose, number one, from Image Comics. Secret Empire Zero. And then uh, Batman, number 21. Rebirth Batman, 21. Yeah, part... Uh... Part one. Part one of the button. Ah, yes. Good times. Should be, should be important. Should be, yeah. It's, yeah. Good stuff. Let's see, uh, want to start with, uh, we don't have any Ross. Well, you know, he's, he's pursuing higher education. He's a busy lad. Yeah. Doing lad like he's in short pants running around with a little yeah. leprechaun hat on. <laughs> I don't know what noise that was supposed to be just now, but that's... Well, yeah. Yeah. I was gonna. I was gonna go with that being a leprechaun sound. I was hoping it, that it was, but, it but wasn't. I don't think. I don't. Yeah. No. I'm pretty sure it was a sped up like Spanish dance song. Yeah. <laughs> like a hat dance. Like the thing with the mouse dance around the hat. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <sighs> so I don't know if that's real or if it's just racist. I'm pr- I don't know. It was in those Warner Brothers cartoons, so. Yeah. Both? Maybe. All right. We'll do a little bit of news. Uh, so I guess first on our weird news docket, uh, Bernie Wrightson passed away this last month. Creator known for Swamp Thing and Frankenstein Alive. Uh, really nice dude. Actually got to meet him last September uh, at the uh, Salt Lake City show. 
uh, with Roger, one of the other fellows. Super cool, really, really nice guy. Like, just, just really nice. And he did a lot of fantastic work. Uh, if you've never seen Bray Wright's work because you're not a Swamp Thing fan or you don't dig monsters, it, you're really letting yourself down because the man made amazing art. So, yeah, just look up Frankenstein Alive or just look up Bernie Wrightson in general and you'll find stuff that was good. So that's an unfortunate state of affairs. That's how the world works. Other news. There's uh, some talk on the Marvel TV front. Was there something other than that, Rob? I don't think so, yeah. I, I, aside from that, they they pretty much got the whole cast of Injustice 2 out now. Well, okay. so, Is that really really big news? I don't, I, I don't know. If you're <laughs> following Injustice, I think the whole cast is out now. Well, that's good times. On the uh, Marvel TV front, uh, we've recently heard, I think I want to say Monday this is released. Not that that matters, because who knows when you're listening to this. So They're going to be putting out a, well, at least a pilot episode. Uh, in theory, it's going to be a 10-episode run, 30-minute uh, episodes, and what they'll be doing is the New Warriors. Cast for it a little weird. After reviewing the cast, it seems like they took some great, like somebody fell asleep reading Great Lakes Avengers, and woke up and finished some new warriors and thought they were the same book. Yeah, I, I can see that. Uh, they're possibly they're connecting this to the new warriors that tried to have their own reality show. And so, like, definitely the low point for both the new warriors series and connecting with Great Lakes Avengers is, to me, also a low point because I I actually think the new warriors was a pretty decent concept. But it, it did fall down in, in the comics. Yeah, by, by the end of it, the biggest thing they did was the whole start of Civil War, like the first Civil War. Yeah, well, in, in, yeah, in that reality TV yeah. version, yeah. Reality TV chasing uh, bad guys, which I, this might be that, I guess. I, it's hard to say. Like It's supposed to be coming out through um, ABC Family, which is now known as Freeform. So it's changed its name from ABC Family to the Freeform, which I'll give them. They've got that uh, Sync show. I think it's called Sync. Sync? Yeah, that's right. Sinkers? Sync? Sync? I can't remember the name of it is. Anyway, it's about a girl who gets into a giant tub of water, gets a bunch of electrodes hurt under her head, and she can line up with a dead person's body as long as it's been less than 30 minutes since they died. So, like, it's all the mystery stuff. It's not a bad show. I like it. Stitchers, that's what it's called. Hey, there you go. It only took me explaining part of the show to make sense to myself. So Stitchers was pretty good. I didn't really see anything else they put out. There was a couple other commercials that looked cool, but not programs I'd watched. Anyhow, that has nothing to do with this particular project at hand. So, cast. We have Speedball. Yeah. Thrasher. Night Thrasher. Night Thrasher, that's right. Uh, Mr. Immortal. Yes. Weird. Yeah, uh, one of our Great Lake Avengers. Debris? Yeah, which... I want to say Debris is also a Great Lakes Avenger, but I, I don't, don't remember enough that. to know that. Yeah. The, the big microbe? One. Microbe, yes, Microbe. Which yeah. Microbe was a part of that run for the, the New Warriors as well, the the TV run. Okay. I remember that now. Yeah, have you said guy. Yeah, yeah to speak to... Uh, germs. Germs, yeah. That stuff. Yeah. And then uh, Squirrel Girl, yeah. which uh, she also Great Lakes Avenger Lake, during okay. the first run, which Great Lake Avengers, if y'all don't know, was a joke. Yeah, it was never meant to be taken seriously. No, it's actually kind of 
A little infuriating. I think you were there. I was, I was watching a YouTube video, and they were like, yeah, ten worst Marvel heroes, and, like, half of them were Great Lake Avengers, and it's like, yeah, no, like, obviously, they're all, they're yeah. jokes. They're built as a joke cast of characters. Yeah, they'd be like, ten worst series actors. Leslie Nielsen. Leslie, yeah, Leslie Nielsen, Jim Carrey, you know, although Jim Carrey's done some serious stuff, you know, but... Right, well. Like, you're picking, you're picking the wrong thing. Or, right. or best action stars, and you're like, Meryl Streep. <laughs> what? That's, that's a good one. Yeah, like, you're, you're totally... <laughs> you're totally picking the wrong thing. These guys were not made to be epic. Top they were ten, made to be... Top ten worst police actors in movies. We go back to Leslie Nelson. Yeah. Because uh, it's a joke, you yeah. all. Yeah, it's, it's not meant to be... They, they weren't meant to be taken seriously in any way. No. Yeah. Not that that's where they, I mean, a majority of them came from that book. Squirrel Girl existed before that, which, I mean, it, yeah. depending how you feel about the character, it was whatever. Yeah, well, that's true. But this right here, if this one's working as a show, all it does is kill the idea of a Squirrel Girl live-action movie, which you say stupid, Steve, and I say no, no. Ain't a Kendrick, it'd be fine. I, I don't I don't think we were going to get a live-action movie, but you never know. I, this this cast could work. It's definitely aiming to be a funnier show, though. Right, but yeah, the setup for at least at this point is supposed to be 30, 30 minute shows, thirty minute episodes, and supposed to be comedy. So I guess we'll see if it turns out to be the Big Bang Theory with costumes on. Oh god, I hope not. Yeah, me too. it's like a slap in the face twice. Yeah, nothing, nothing about that that would be worthwhile. Yeah. Jeff Loeb and uh, I, I can't remember the guy's name. Jeff Loeb is supposed to be executive producing. They've got the showrunner from Cougar Town. Have you ever saw that thing? Which would be awesome if it was like a bunch of cats and that like there were people in the town. There was all constantly cougar noises. That would be hilarious. That's not what it was. Office drama with cougars. Yeah, can you imagine how one gets mad when he's in Marcus territory? It's the printer every time. Hilarious. No. No, I don't, no? Okay, well. Hey, you lost me. I'm, I'm getting the no sign, so it's, we're going to cut that off. It started, and then it got weird. <laughs> it's all about territory, Rob. Cougar Town! Mm. But that's not what it was about at all. I mean, the other option was, you know, I guess a little more racy, I guess. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Anyway, we'll see what happens with that thing. Uh, we'll keep yeah. you prize as we find things out. I don't think any cast has been dropped, save for characters for the show. So I don't think they've actually cast anyone yet. Not that I'm aware of, at least. Yeah. It's, it's pretty early in yeah in what they're talking about. But. So we'll see if that has anything happen with it. Anyway, can't think of anything else that I'm aware of at this point that was newsworthy or worth blotty, 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 blah about. No? Okay, that's what I thought. No, I don't think so. Well, no, wait. There was one thing. Huh? I don't think we talked about. There was, there was a comic that was pulled off the shelf. Oh, they, well, I don't remember if we talked about it or not, but in case you don't know yet, uh, X-Men Gold number one got hella popular last weekend because of some racist blah-da-blah inside of it. Now, they are going back to second print. See, now, here's where having digital versus having print copies of books matters. Slightly. Because if you are a digital member, the digital version of your book has already been changed. So, you don't get the full racist propaganda that the rest of us got to have. If you caught the tag late, you got the only edited version anyway. 
Now, granted, Sacred Prince are coming out next week. The story actually is pretty good. So yeah. if, if you were looking to get into it because you dig the X-Men and you like that cast, the Kitty Pride and the Colossus and Old Man Logan, it's a pretty good story. If you're looking for it for the chase value of the racist bigotry, um, well, you missed the boat. So g- good luck with that. Look for First Prince, folks. I want to say there's a couple spots online selling for 10 to $20. So, uh, yeah. And it's, you know, once again, if you... If, now, I, I would say... Offhand, just for myself, my own clarity as as a fan or whatever. You shouldn't be hunting for books for rarity to begin with. But if you are, it's probably going to be a good idea to have both the first print and the second print. Because there's no way of telling what's going to work. In today's age, that first print could have been 200,000. And let's say, yeah, and let's say like... Half of those are returned. Well, that means that there's only going to be roughly half, or a little bit more, of the second print that's going to be made. So the rarity for the first print and the rarity for the second print could be identical, or the second print much lower. So even though the first print has something that is offensive and has chase, the second print may be more valuable in the long run. Just because less of it got made. Just because less of it got made. Because they never expected to make it this way. Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, that that's the thing. Like, if you're collecting for the possibility of rarity, I mean, it's impossible to know. By me even suggesting that, it's becoming less rare. Yeah. The more I think about it, the less rare it is. It's true. <laughs> but th- there is a possibility that it's worth getting the second print. So before you went, oh, no, no, second print. That second print may become more valuable than the first print. Well, we do know it's going to have a different cover, because the image they put out for it's a different cover. So, I guess once it gets to printing, it's hard to say what the truth will be with that. But the solicit image is an older cover that was a variant reused. Huh, interesting. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. Anyway, um, so, the, yeah, is that enough about that? Yeah, it was a good book, so. Yeah. yeah. No, it was, yeah. I, I wouldn't even have known about that had somebody not brought it up. No. Yeah. But it's because it's not the top of my mind. Yeah, you know. Internet's full of crazy nonsense. Yeah, we can. Only half of it's true. Half the time. It's, it's true. It's like <laughs> half and half. I was, told, I was told earlier this week that uh, 70% of, of percentages given as facts are only 70% factual. And I thought, you're not helping your case, sir. It's true. That's what, that's what I thought. Hmm. That was, it was funny in my head. No, it totally makes Funny sense. in my head, not funny in real life? No, it's okay. That funny. happens kind of a lot. Anyway, uh, let's move on to books, Rob. Just to let you know, there will be spoilers. How we do some X-Men Blue? Number sure. one? Yeah. So the non-offensive book. <laughs> no, non-offensive, that's the word? Yes. Offensive would be if it was fighting you. Offensive because it offended you? Yes. There you go. Okay. So this is being written by Colin Bunn, with artists... George Molino and Matteo Buffani, both the double artists for this issue. Right. So hopefully we got the right pronunciation on that. I want to say Buffani is Italian, I think. Not that that makes any difference. Keep rolling with what's happening in the real world. Okay. As we know from X-Men Prime, the younger class has left and is striking out on their own because they feel like that's that's the right thing to do. And we kind of have some growing pains in the... uh, in the team, one of the big things being that Cyclops is not f- kind of filling the, ter- the traditional leader role. Um, instead, we have Gene, 
who's kind of acting as as our leader. And we see some different changes. Of course, one of the big things being Beast. And then, as we know from Black Vortex, Angel has been forever kind of changed. Right. So, this first mission that they're kind of going out on winds up taking them to this crazy yacht. Uh, and there's some kind of situation unfolding, and they kind of make their way down to the ballroom. And that's where we're introduced to a, a newly redesigned Black Tom Cassidy. And they kind of reintroduce him and talk about him just a little bit, and the X-Men kind of have their, their opening where they fight against him, and we kind of see that Black Tom, you know, he's, he's no joke. He's been around for a while, and his abilities are... Crazy? Pretty impressive. Yeah. Now, he is more like classic Black Tom Cassidy. He's not the wood manipulator... You know, thing that we saw in the past. So I don't. You know, or he's I, half tree. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, know exactly. it's definitely changed that way. But I don't know when. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if we just kind of. You know, sometimes if a character, especially a villain, is is not great, you know, we kind of leave him alone for a while, come back and just you know, don't ask questions. <laughs> uh, but of course, when you deal with Black Tom, more often than not, you're going to be dealing with Juggernaut, who also makes an appearance in this book with a pretty impressive new outfit. I don't know if I 100% care for it, but, you know, it's a, it's a different kind of look. It looks pretty good. Uh, the neat thing for that is that they actually harken back to the first time the Juggernaut and the X-Men had, had battled, and kind of even make jokes about, you know, kind of the continuity, because Juggernaut doesn't understand why they look like they used to look, and if this was a rejuvenator or uh, some kind of rebirth thing, like, nobody gets to restart from scratch. They all have to... Have to still own up what the to what they were before, which is an interesting concept with, with Juggernaut, since he's had such a kind of a long history with the X Men. Um, but you know, aside from just his regular determination to take down anybody who messes with Black Tom, he sing, he singles out Cyclops. And even though Black Tom kind of orders him to take him down without killing him, he makes it pretty clear he's going to kill Cyclops. And the answer for it is, you know, he still thinks he's, you know, he's responsible for Xavier's death. And even though this Cyclops explains it wasn't him, it doesn't matter to Colossus, to Juggernaut. And Juggernaut's gonna, not going to wait around to figure out, you know, the minutia of time travel. These guys. Um, but one of the things that I thought was really good in this book that they write back on a lot is the X Men being more aware that they're tearing up property, that there's people involved in the story that are not superhuman, and that they got to save them, and they got to do something to protect them. And I thought that was actually really cool. Um, the other part is that they spend a lot of time kind of with the idea that this is, this is to build sort of a reputation for the X-Men, and so they need to be seen doing things in, in kind of the right way. Positive light style, yeah. In the end, Juggernaut really does wind up being almost too much to handle, and Beast uses some pretty freaky dicky magic to send him through a wormhole, which we want to find out, you know, drops him in Siberia somewhere. It may or may not have pulled him through hell first. Well, magic is tricky. Yeah. Um, which is definitely a big new thing for Beast in the old new... Well, it's a different path than what he took before. Yeah, in the, in the X-Men timeline, so for young Beast. Um, which actually leads us into another little cliffhanger thing. And even though this isn't... This, is, I think, is the more important catch, and so I'm going to 
go ahead and skip over what the catch is. Right. But kind of one of the cool things is that they're set up in Mandapur, which is, you know, of course, a fictional city that's very important to the X-Men. Uh, mythos, I guess. Yeah, mythos. The other nice thing is it gets them out of New York. Right. Which I, I have no problem with X uh, Gold setting up in Central Park or whatever, but this will give us a lot more freedom with what they're doing and, and how many stories they're going to be involved in um, when it comes to like bigger events. Um, but we wind up finding out that they have somebody who's kind of a mentor figure for them that's kind of calling the shots. And his identity is a little questionable. So we'll just kind of leave the idea there that, you know, the X-Men Blue Team, although being their own heroes, have somebody that they're answering to, and that person is maybe a bit of a surprise? Questionable um, intent, yeah. The last part, there's actually a backup story, and I don't want to give anything away about this backup story, um, half because it's really cool and half because it really infuriates me. Um, so one of the really cool things about this backup story is if you've been a fan of Wolverine for a long time, this calls back to the first book he appeared in, and it kind of really like puts a lot of those same gears in motion. So if you've seen the hype of the character that's been shouted out that is is Wolverine, like this story might clear up who that is and what the deal is, but it also makes that tie back to the first appearance of Wolverine, which I thought was really cool. And I actually I enjoyed getting to read that story because it felt like the essential kind of like boiled down Wolverine kind of being displayed to us here. Sure. So, um, but yeah, my, my opinions on, I'm sure later on will be voiced, but as just a, a pure storytelling mechanic, I thought it was really cool. And I liked that it, that harkened back to that old story. Sure. Uh, Raleigh score for the book. Setting aside your anger for the backup. <laughs> uh, you know, I actually enjoyed it. It was, it was kind of a, a hard one for me because I really think that the all-new X-Men should have gone home a long time ago. And so initially I, I didn't plan to pick this up. And I'm glad I did. Um, I'd actually have to give it a, a 3.5. I, I actually I really enjoyed it. I love the artwork for it. I think the, the artist they got as their primary for this book is fantastic. A really neat catch, and I like the way that they play with the characters, and they didn't even jump on some of the hot buttons that I was really worried that they would do to establish that these characters are different. And I like that, you know, we, we got Juggernaut in that first issue, and he's making comments back to old issues, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. So. Right on. Um, well, you know, I give it a four. The art's really good. The story's pretty fun. The pieces, of the like callbacks, I do like the whole juggernaut and him not seeing the first classes as anything more than what he's expecting them to be, which is themselves. So him not caring whether this Scott is the same Scott that did the thing to Xavier, I, I think is interesting. And I think more people in the world should respond that way to him because for all intents and purposes, they are the same. Yeah. Granted, there are nuances that are different and different paths, which... This whole universe still up, re, re, uh, fixing itself after Secret Wars by itself is a little odd. So these being anomalies, which is basically the way we understand it, 
is cool because of the same way Rachel Summers is cool and the same way Cable's cool or Strife or other Cable. Because their worlds don't exist anymore, so they're their own thing. So I'm all, I'm all right with that idea. I don't have the same hate for the backup story pieces. I see where the infuriation's from, for sure. I don't have the same hand on it, but I didn't read as much of that other stuff as you did. So... I guess I don't have the, the hang-up there because it wasn't something I cared about before or read before. Uh, anyway, I would give it a four. Charles Wells grew up a good writer, so yeah. as far as stories are concerned, it's web woven pretty well. Yeah. well I, and I like that it it kind of plays with the idea that, that they know they're in a fantastic universe. So the idea that somehow somebody could become younger just, just happens right. isn't something that they're like, oh, it doesn't make any sense. And it's not quite like... She-Hulk, where it was taken as a breaking the fourth wall kind of attempt, right, it feels like it, it feels like it works inside the story, and I thought that was cool. Yeah, for sure. All right, uh, let's move on to Nightwing number uh, nineteen. Mm. Now, this is uh, <clears throat> part four of a current series going uh, in the Nightwing books. Uh, this is actually chapter four for the Nightwing Must Die storyline, which uh, I don't. Know if we actually talked about any of these in here on the show or not? I think we haven't yet, which is unfortunate because it's actually really cool. It, no, it's been really good. Um, so, I, I guess if you're wanting stuff before this particular issue, well, there are three chapters before it. So, uh, good luck with that. We during that stuff we ran into Mr. Uh, Professor Pig, and just so you, we can set the table, uh, Professor Pig shows up causing problems, and Deathwing, which is a throwback to previous universe, well, I guess not previous universe, but before New 52 happened. Yeah. Since it's all the same universe, apparently. Yeah. Um, anyway, so uh, when we first started the book, uh, we open up, and we're in the middle of, like, a cultist ceremony, and we've got a guy who's, I don't know, preaching to himself for the most part, and he's got a, a person tied up that he's uh, starting to bleed, and they don't reveal who the person is. I have a feeling if we get a reveal for that... It'll probably be the next issue, because it very well may have been Bloodwing. That's just a guess on my part, because it might not matter at all. Uh, but that leads to revealing who he is, and that he is the one who's been after Nightwing the entire time. And that Bloodwing, or Deathwing, excuse me, Deathwing, was being sent by him. Professor Pig was also working in accordance to what he wanted them to do. So, like, the master behind the master kind of thing. Uh, but we cut to there to current time, being outside of uh, Saqqara, Egypt, and this is current timeline, and we've got a, a man walking through the desert, which we, we get a glimpse of his, under his desert, sh uh, I don't know what you call that, desert robes, robe, I guess, and we, we see the Nightwing emblem, the top of it at least, and he's got a lady with him, and they're being led through the desert by a guide, and they talk about being on a tour, and the guide's leading him to take photos of a bunch of ancient sites in Egypt, and Oh, they'll be arriving right the sunrise on the dune on the top of the dunes. So they want to take great pictures of it, and it'll be just so awesome. And about that time, he tells them, "Oh, you'll create great memories for the very short time in, for a very short time indeed." And about that time, a bunch of uh, guys with crazy like jackal masks appear out of the ground, um, like buried on the sand, like top level style. And uh, from there, of course, it turns into Nightwing whooping. Whooping, whooping ass. You know that's what he does. And uh, the entire time we have this monologue going on in Grayson's head, 
and he explained about how he knew that this, this guy was going to lead him out to the desert for this, because he knows these guys are connected to the group he's chasing. So he planned for them to lead him out here. And to reveal from what happened in the last issue, him and Damien encountered um, a couple fellas, one being Deathwing, and that has led to Robin being captured. So Damien's been captured by these people, and that's the whole reason why Grayson is in, the, in Egypt in the first place, is he's chasing the guys who kidnapped Damien. Which you think wouldn't go well for them in general, because it's Damien, but, you know, he's, he's still a kid, and they got the upper hand, because there's a lot of them. So as we go through the de desert uh, the desert fight, we get revealed that the girl that's with him is his current blue-haired girlfriend, Sean, who, uh, she's led an interesting life, and she's not really hero, uh, but not really villain. So more... Think Huntress type area. So, super villain at one point, and now not necessarily a villain. After the battle goes on for a while, we get to the point where the only person left is uh, is one of the guys trying to escape, and uh, it leaves the Nightwing taking him out, and pins him down in the desert and tells him, you're going you're gonna to tell us where the boy is, and he's like, initially he's like, oh, we were just supposed to delay you. He's like, yeah, you're going to tell us, but not because, because I'm a hero, I won't hurt you. But she's a super villain. And she will. And about that time, she puts her uh, rocket boot over his face with the rocket ready to fire. And uh, he's like, oh, we were just just to delay you. And he tells him where to go to find Damien. And tells him how Mr. Or Dr. Hurt is going to sacrifice Damien at sunrise. And so they were only going to delay them in order to make them show up at the right time. Because apparently Nightwing is supposed to witness it in order for whatever blah-da-blah Dr. Hurt has going on. Dr. Hurt's been the guy in the shadows. Which, if you remember him throwback-wise, he's a dude with a really kind of fruity uh, mask, and basically wears a suit. Yeah. Uh, yeah, if you were reading during the Grant Morrison, Batman and Robin era, I think he was first introduced there. Yeah. Crazy, uh, and dangerous, because he's psychotic. As Sean and him head into the catacombs to try to get to Damien before Dr. Hurt can do anything. Of course, they run, against, run up against Deathwing again. And that leads to Nightwing and Deathwing fighting, which is pretty cool. Like, pictorial-wise, it it's pretty awesome. Like, the fight itself is really cool. Um, he drops a statue on top of Shaw, or Sean, and that, uh, of course, makes Grayson even more pissed. Because, well, it's his girlfriend. At this point, it's possible that's his baby mama. Which is also a crazy threat happening in the other books. Well, in the previous issues. He he pretty well slashes, manages to knock Deathwing down to, uh, pretty good, and he runs over to try to help her and move the statue. Well, we find out she's underneath using her rocket boots to keep the thing from crushing her. So he winds up lifting the, the statue just enough for her to be able to get out, and it's like super heavy, and the whole time he's this inner monologue is like, he can't let her die, he can't let her die. And he doesn't have the strength because he's not a superhuman, but he's going to hold it anyway. Of course, it gives him about enough time for Deathwing to come at him again, and cut him a couple times. And uh, then we get a reveal that Nightwing still has this the ceremonial dagger that Deathwing in a previous issue cut him with. That the dagger itself will make you see the future. Deathwing's been taunting him about, you saw me in the future, ha ha ha, you saw me in the future. And, I mean, the reveal for what Grayson saw is a couple issues back, so we're not going to go to that. But Grayson pulls it out and winds up using it to deflect uh, the, the weapons that Deathwing's using. And he cuts Deathwing's face the same way Deathwing cut his face. And about that time, Deathway, Deathwing comes out of his crazy funk. 
and realizes that he doesn't know where he's at, why he's there, what's going on. Because he's also on Professor Pig's experiments. And uh, prior to being an experiment, he was a totally different dude. That leaves uh, Sean, Sean to be willing to basically take care of the guy because he's... It turns out he's a victim, too, no different than a bunch of the other characters we've run into lately. Uh, anyway, that leaves Nightwing going after Mr. Hyde, of course, um, which leads him through some more dark corridors with a bunch of folks dressed in alternate and older Robin costumes, like, everywhere. And this whole time, like, Hyde's been saying that everyone's holding him back. Like, he decided he needed a trauma in order to force him forward to reach his full potential. And he assumed the trauma of the girlfriend being kidnapped before or the possible death of her, would force him to change. And now we realize that the reason he kidnapped Damien is to try to force Nightwing to become this ultimate version of himself, according to Crazy Man. Um, there's another reveal at the end of the book that's a pretty crazy reveal, and it's hard to say what's true about it. I mean, ultimately, since comic books, you know, part of it's going to be a lie. But it's a pretty crazy catch. Um, and depending on how far they decide to go with it, I mean, it's pretty detrimental. Anyhow, uh, score-wise, I give it a three and a half. I mean, it's a pretty fun book. This whole, like, series has been really cool, and Deathwing being back is crazy. And the other pieces that we've gotten from that have been awesome, too. So, I give it a three and a half. Um, I definitely dig what they're doing with the story. I dig what's going on with it. I like that they're going back to a couple of the other characters from the Batman days of Grayson, which I think is cool. And Professor Pig was kind of being set up as his Joker, I think, by Morrison in the first place, so... The fact we're dealing with him again, it just makes sense. Anyway, so I give it a three and a half. I will quit my blah blah Rob, <laughs> score for the book. Um, I don't really follow suit with that. I've, I've liked what they've done so far with this storyline. And it is cool to kind of bring some of these things back, uh, especially since a lot of where we're moving in Rebirth is tying back older threads. So I thought I thought that was kind of a cool thing to have in there. Um, like you said, I, it's, it's good that they're using these villains because, you know, Morrison did create them as kind of his replacements for some of Batman's older villains. So it's kind of nice to see them pick them up and use them again. Um, mostly because if you were following Nightwing before, you know that Blockbuster was his kind of big guy and, you know, he had a couple other characters that were unique to him, but... Most of them have not made appearances in 52, so this is kind of a nice build-out of a rogues gallery for Nightwing. But yeah, I give it a 3.5, 3.5 as well? 3.5, yes. Okay, otherwise the numbers are crazy, and I don't understand how to put the two points of the half in there. 3.5, 2? Yeah, it doesn't work. It's fine. No, use your percentages, man. Three and a half. Point five. Okay, ah, man, that was... So, uh, let's move on to uh, Images Rose, uh, number one. This is uh, written by Meredith Finch, and uh, the art is by... I'm, I know I'm going to butcher this a little bit, and I'm real sorry about that, because I don't know how to pronounce it. It's uh, I-G, so Ig, Guara, uh, who you can follow on Instagram at, uh, at I-G-G-U-A-R-A. But you can also find uh, Meredith uh, on there as uh, Finch Meredith, uh, at symbol, of course, first. Uh, just so you know, if you want to follow them on the Instagram. So, Rose, it's 
it had a couple different covers, and one of them was by Meredith's husband, David. Uh, David, you'll know from, like, uh, Bat- Batman, Batman Dark Knight. Uh, he did a lot of work for Image back in the early days. Uh, Meredith's done some other writing, too. She wrote Wonder Woman prior to Rebirth, so you, you may be familiar with the two of them doing things. When the book first opens up, there's a nice letter from Meredith to the folks that helped her make the book. And she's still pretty new to the game of writing. I mean, I know, I'm pretty sure she probably had a hand in helping with the Dark Knight series, probably. I mean, husband-wife combo, How, how if, if he's working on it there, how could she not also add to that? But writing-wise, I think her first foray, foray into just independent writing was the Wonder Woman stuff. But this is the first character-owned book, I believe, for her, I'm pretty sure. Anyhow, it's a really cool letter. Like, it's uh, not necessary for the rest of the book, but as far as, like, a cool... It's just a cool thing. Start of the book, we open up, and we're in this uh, this uh, nice kind of uh, farmer-type village. Uh, and it's talking about how the world works and how the world was. And the story's being told to us by someone else, uh, someone off-camera. And they're explaining how the world used to be and how they, they used to have the cats which were like magical creatures, and they had avatars or guardians. And we get a couple of shots of different ones. We have Temperance, which is a giant black panther, with uh, like a, I don't know, a, a younger archer with kind of like paint markings on his face. And we see uh, Justice, which is a lion, and he has a straight-up knight for his, for his guardian. And we have Courage, which is uh, kind of like half-knight, half... Well, I, don't know, I guess he's I guess he's a knight also, just different different group of knights. Uh, with the first guy, uh, the one for uh, Temperance is more magical archer style. Anyhow, uh, that cuts very quickly to the village being completely burned and ransacked, and it talking about how the kings all wound up battling regarding this whole magical power stuff, and how well different factions wanted to destroy the avatars and their Guardians, and uh, we get a couple scenes of of a battle between two different kings, two different groups, and we get flashes to children being taken, and and so the the leader that won out basically decided that any time a person was born that could become a guardian or maybe be able to wield magic, they would be collected or or killed, and so we see time passing, and we see children taken from their homes, families trying to hide children that have magic powers, uh, other children's chased down, uh, by knights on horse, it's very, like, it's very kill the babies type collection, collecting children type thing. We cut, cut from there to ten years later, so there's been a giant ten year gap where the world's been being ruled by this particular leader, and this particular leader does not allow children with power, or people with powers, people with magic, to survive. And we are introduced to Rose, and she's living in a a village with her mother, and her mother gives her this necklace as a birthday present, along with this white rose that her father gave her, that the father gave the mother when she was born. And she tells her, I'm, I'm replacing your bracelet with this magical charm that will help hide you. You have to wear the necklace all the time, and don't be playing with your magic. She's like, oh, Mom, nobody nobody cares about that anymore. It's been so long since anything happened. Because apparently the sacking of villages has stopped. Assumably because magic users have figured out how to hide that. And up to this point, Rose has been wearing these bracelets her mother's been making for her that apparently mask her magic powers. And she's now replaced that with a necklace. Well, of course, Rose, who doesn't have any memories of the 
crazy chaos that was led from the war. And age-wise, she's young enough that probably in her late teens, I would say. So the ten years prior, she would have been very, very young. And if she wasn't showing power, she wouldn't have any memory of any of that happening anyway. So we fast forward a little bit through the day, and she is uh, laying in a lake and trying to bring the petals or the leaves from the trees that are falling down to her to fall on her hand. So, like, playing with her magic. And uh, she winds up climbing out of the lake, and she says to herself, oh, I should probably go home for dinner. I really should, I should try harder tomorrow. I'll try to practice harder, even though Mom doesn't want me to. And about that time, she walks up and over the edge of the little pond area she was in on the hill and sees the village is on fire. It's pretty bad. Um, so she runs to her house, finds Mom, and Mom is pretty well beaten up in the middle of the fire. And uh, she tells her mom, I'm going to get you out of here, Mom. I'm going to save you. And in the process, Mother tells her she needs to run because the knights are there for her. And she needs to escape. And then Mom dies. And that leaves Rose, of course, to lash out at the universe, just anger and fear and tears. And she leaves the rose with Mom, and one of her teardrops falls onto the rose, and we see it turn to a bright white. And we get this flash of these eyes that look like cat eyes. Like meow meow cat eyes. And then uh, from there we flash to a, another city, to the city of Vinta Belgrim. And uh, we enter into what appears to be a throne room, and we've got a diplomat begging for help to try to fight the plague, and all the people are experiencing turmoil and death from all this pestilence going around, and whoever they're pleading to doesn't care. And about that time, in runs a knight um, with a little mohawk, and he interrupts the dignitary, taking precedence of the conversation. Clearly what he has to say is more important. And so the the ruler tells the the old lady, we'll look into what we can do to help with the plague. And sends her away. And then immediately turns to one of her henchmen and tells them to make sure she doesn't make it out of the castle. For the most part. Uh, then we get a reveal of who the uh, leader is. And it's uh, this woman with uh, purple kind of like punk rock style hair. And she's, she's dressed very scandalous, which is kind of awesome. The knight tells her how there was no sign of the rebels in the village we sacked, and of course that doesn't make her happy. So uh, she basically threatens him, letting him know maybe he needs to have a little more punishment to figure out where he fits in the world, and orders him to return to find them. Why did you come back in the first place if you hadn't found them? So he leaves with his life in peril to find these rebels, that they were searching for. From there, she retires to the back of the room, away from all of her slaves and servants that are just sitting around her tied in chains and shackles, to a skeleton which is tied up in, like, hands are bound, and she starts talking to the skeleton, which reveals that it's her father, and he has apparently died while in shackles, because clothes are still on him, and his bones are in a fashion of that he was kneeling, but, uh... Best we can tell he died of old age, maybe. Or magic. Whatever. And we see that she has a lot of power. And talks about how she won't let anyone else have power. And she will be sure to destroy whoever it is it does. There we jump quickly to join Rose again, who's running through the woods. Who is currently hunting for the knights that burn the village. And she says it can't have gotten far. 
granted, they're on horseback, so well, who knows what the girl's thinking. But she's after the knights. And that leads her to run to a band of folks in the woods, which are a ragtag group of uh, what looks to be minstrels, uh, sword wielders, like very Robin Hoodish. And uh, initially they call her a spy, and one of, the, one of the men from the group steps forward and says, We have ways to see if you're a spy. And she she acts afraid, and he asks her if she's afraid. And about that time, he gets hit in the head with a stick, and we see the leader of this band of rabble, which is an older woman, uh, very witch-like. And she's got a, like a giant staff with a crazy half-moon thing on top that has a skull tied in the middle of it. And she tells him, The only way she needs to be afraid of is your face. You leave that girl alone, you don't, don't make her afraid. You guys gotta go look and make sure they might be followed by the knights. And so they all kind of spread out, and she sits with the, with Rose and starts talking to her. Which time-wise, it's hard to see how much time passes, but they have a pretty lengthy conversation. And uh, Rose realizes these are rebels. And she automatically assumes these must be the people the knights were actually looking for, because why are they be looking for her? They must be looking for the rebels. And so we're not really sure what, how exactly she feels about the situation, because first she seems to be very angry at them for having gotten the village in trouble in the first place. Anyway, there's some more like, catches inside there that explain how this all connects. And then we pull back to the evil queen, and she goes downstairs to reveal our next threat. And I'll leave it at that, because that's a pretty good catch. There's some other pieces in the middle that are uh, definitely catch-worthy. And as far as like setup for a, I don't know, magic adventure story, it's pretty freaking awesome. The art is fantastic. Uh, the write-ups, which I mentioned before on the show, talk about Rose and Thorn, which will be her cat. And I think that combination of names is just awesome. So, it hits me in my, I think that's awesome bone. Which I don't know where that is, but it's awesome. Anyway, score-wise, uh, on our, on our score chart of one to five, huh, I give it a four and a half, because the art is fantastic. The stories are really, really good, like, fantasy set up. The characters are fairly interesting. I mean, we met our group of rogues and, like, where they lie in the world or what their powers or abilities actually are, it's hard to say at this point. But it's clear that this is going to be our, our little band of married men that go against the evil queen. She seems super evil. Oh my god, super evil. I mean, it, it, she just... It's just so, like, crazy. Anyway, I was super impressed with it. Uh, double excited for the next issue. Like, fantasy-wise, great book. Uh, Rob, do you have a score for the, uh, the issue of Rose? Yeah, I'd, gi- I'd give it a four. Actually, really, I enjoyed it. I thought the artwork, like you said, it was fantastic. Um, I like the storytelling so far. It, it feels like it's going to be, you know, they're, they're addressing, like, this whole alien world in their story, which I think is pretty cool. Um, I don't know if it grabbed me quite as, as well as it did you, but, like, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit, so I think, I think it's going to be really good. Yeah, for for a starting point, it's a really good launch, I think. Mm-hmm. And like the couple other catches that we didn't kind of go over in there are interesting little pieces of the world. Like you said, I mean, it explains quite a bit in those first couple pages about the way things are currently happening and the atrocities that happen between A and B. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely some cool things, and like the end catch, like what that is, is pretty cool. So let's move on to uh, Secret uh, Empire number zero. So what some would say are the big books this week. Big books. Yeah, definitely definitely one of them. Yeah. Um, this is written by Nick Spencer, with artists by Daniel Acuna. And Spencer's been working on Captain America now for a minute. He's the one that started off that whole 
Steve Rogers Captain America series with the crazy catch then the first issue with uh, Jack Flag being thrown out of the plane. Yeah. And just to kind of give a little bit of context, this story goes all the way back to the Pleasant Hills storyline, which probably should have been a bigger deal for Marvel than it was. You know, it has its roots in that. And this is definitely the path for everything that they've been working on in most of the Captain America books. You know, both Sam and Cap and... Thunderbolts. Thunderbolts and, and, you know, a bunch of other stuff. There is one thing that I I don't quite know, and it's probably just because I haven't been following Iron Man as well as I should. I don't know when when, when Tony woke up. Because he's definitely awake, and for whatever reason, he's in his classic 80s Iron Man suit in this story. If that's him in the suit... I, I imagine because we got he's got those eyes in the suit. Yeah, you know, I thought it was just the suit at first because the dialogue's red, right? But there's eyeballs in the suit, so but could it be somebody else? I don't I don't know because I haven't been following that series very closely. Yeah, I'm not reading Iron Man either, so I don't know that. Yeah, but there's so many things that are going on in the story. Um, the biggest things being that everything is falling apart. All of the worst case scenarios have happened. We've got the the Earth Shield, but there was a suicide bomber, and this Earth Shield's been damaged. The Chitari are here; they're they're on the door, and they're making their attack on Earth. We've got Pleasant Hill prisoners running amok, with you know this retaliation on the Superhumans and on Shield. We have have a whole detachment of Hydra agents that have taken Zakovia, and all of this is happening at once. And Steve Rogers and Sharon Carter are they are completely bewildered. Like Everything they're doing is to try to counter these things. They have no way of actually completely dealing with them. And from what we're understanding from the space side of it, this Chitauri invasion is so devastating that these guys are all pretty much in a one-way ticket. Like They don't expect any of the heaviest hitters in Marvel to come back from the space side of it. So, a lot of what we get is seeing some heroics. We see the people that are left in New York to kind of defend the city, which is like Luke Cage and Iron Fist and Cloak and Dagger. The Defenders cast, yeah. Really kind of trying to take out most of the villains in the city. While we see all these kind of heavy hitters like Captain Marvel and Hyperion and Blue Marvel and Quasar and as many of them as you can kind of think of, with the exception of Regular Nova. Right. Out there defending the Earth in space, yeah, yeah along with Groot and Rocket and yeah, and like yeah, a whole, whole batch of, of space characters out, out outside fighting in space against this Chitari wave after wave of invasion. Yeah. And right as we kind of get to the point where we think that, that, that there's there's no comeback to this, Iron Man and Ironheart just oh, somehow we managed to get the shield up. It's all ready to go. And, like, both of them are kind of like, this doesn't make any sense. Especially Tony. Yeah. Like, because this, this is just happening. There's no reason for this to work. Why is this happening? And they kind of, you know, they, they question it, but they take it for granted. And so they get the shield up, and, you know, we start seeing, you know, I guess the Chitauri wave just, like, throwing itself against the shield, just with no, no thought to themselves. And, you know, the, the guys in space are kind of starting to relax because they, they realize Earth can't be the target now. And as we're battling on Earth, the villains start teleporting away, and so we're having victories on Earth. Yeah, and Carol, Carol says to Steve that, yeah, they, 
at this point, that with the shield up, they just have to get out of the way, and the Tataris are, are just so desperate to get to Earth that as long as they manage to move, that they're just running themselves into the shield and dying, which is crazy, mm. but still, that's what's happening. And then we get, um, kind of have a, a bit of a catch, I'd say in the middle, and it's not something that you shouldn't see coming, but basically we begin to see whatever the master plan is as, like, a, a helicarrier ship winds up running into the command ship. Right. So we'll, we'll skip the, the out, outcome of that, but... It's a pretty two, big part of it, so yeah. Yeah, two of the things that are kind of important to this is that we learn that one of the big reasons the shield came on is to trap these guys out in space. Right. So most of the powerhouses of the Marvel Universe, they're effectively neutralized. Because they can't get back in, because when the shield's up, there's no entry to the planet. Yeah. And they're all stuck on the outside. And then we also get another reveal, and it's unfortunate that this wasn't what we talked about, because we thought that Zemo was talking to, to Bob, the Sentry. Right. And that Sentry was, was still alive, and he had just been reprogrammed by Maria. Right. And it, it winds up being a little bit more mundane, and it winds up being a character called Blackout. But Blackout is a tremendously powerful oh, old yeah. villain. And in conjunction with the Dark Home, which is a massively powerful magical tome, he basically traps most of New York under this dark dome where they're, in, a, in effect, they're in another dimension. They're effectively gone. If you were in New York and you were actually there battling for New York, you're now took out. You're, you're not going to be able to rise to the call. And Iron Man and Iron Heart both kind of, they see what's happening too late to do anything about it. Right. And in their fleeing from, from the shield defense base, they wind up calling upon everybody else. And so they're going to be marshalling the remaining heroes to go to Washington. Now, one thing I did gloss in the story so far that I, that I did want to talk about was at the very beginning of it, we kind of learn... Uh, what I think is a pretty important part, when Steve was changed by the Cosmic Cube. The Cosmic Cube can't alter all of reality, but in this case it only altered his perception of reality. It never changed actually the way that he did things in the past, which is kind of a very important part, because when we start seeing them trying to manipulate Bucky, if, he, if, if these things in the past had actually happened the way that they've been presented to Steve... Like, Bucky would be very different. Right, he'd be manipulated and changed by it, too. Yeah. And they the whole, like, showing Steve the cave and trying to explain to him, these other memories you're going to have, they're not real memories. That's a pretty big piece in that first opening sequence, yeah. too. Which is probably enough about that, because that's a big piece of the book. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I, I, think it, I think it sells, to me, like, some of the loopholes in, in what's changed Steve. Right. In the Spencer run. Oh, for sure. Our work on it is is beautiful, and Nick Spencer is a heck of a writer. And this is this is definitely, I think, what what he was wanting to do when he wrote that first book. And honestly, I'm I'm glad that they cleared it up so early in the Steve Rogers book, so that we can have this now, because that wasn't supposed to be the big catch. This is the catch. Right. This is what we actually wanted to have as a big thing. I'm going to give it a 4.5. I really hope that this is the the big summer blockbuster that I think Marvel used to do really well, where it's going to really affect these other books. And I've seen it actually have a little effect in other books that came out this month. 
that aren't necessarily saying like, oh, we're part of the secret, secret empire, empire story. Yeah, it's too many secrets. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I think that's how it should be done. Like the the book I'm talking about is Royals. Right. And it it just talks about the Chitari wave. They end up running into it in their story, and it's heading towards Earth. Cool. We all share the same universe again. So you know, I mean, that's all I really want, I guess, is to have that even a little nod that that we're all in the same time frame. Right. Anyhow, I that's me for 4.5. I, I think this is stacking up to be what they pitched it as. So I'm excited to see where they go. Cool. Yeah, you know, I follow suit. I give it a 4. I mean, the cover is fantastic. The variant cover with Bucky and the Cube and Zemo, fantastic. Uh, the 125, not such a fan of. It's the style of art that doesn't... Uh, older fans dig it, me not so much. But that has nothing to do with this particular issue. That's a variant cover that doesn't matter at all. As far as the book's concerned, yeah, the art's great. The catches in it are really good. The slow sell of, like, watching Steve as he maneuvers through the book, awesome. Just great. Uh, the whole turn with, with Marvel outside, which you finally realize she stepped in it, awesome. Like, take that lady. All Civil War Two, take that. So, like, awesome. Uh, yeah, I give it a four. Super strong. Hell interested to see the rest of it. I mean, it's supposed to come out twice a month. I mean, the dates don't totally line up exact to match that, but pretty close. So it'll be a quick burn, but I think it'll be great. And depending on what you thought of Civil War II, this has a lot of payoffs for that, too. Yeah, it Even does. though it's not exclusively the reason they did Civil War, I, I think this is actually something that was definitely in their mind when they were doing that. You know, and, and I mean, it's, it's hard to defend Marvel and say that, like, oh, they didn't put it out because they had a movie coming out saying Civil War, but this sells it more, I think. I think the actions in Civil War and some of the things they showed us in Civil War that weren't explained, I think that... I think this will make the, that payoff better. Agreed. Right on. Uh, let's move on to uh, some Batman. Yeah. This is uh, <laughs> Batman issue 21. And for those of you lucky enough to get the lenticular cover, good for you. Uh, the international variant is actually kind of awesome, too. Uh, it's definitely really cool. Uh, but as far as books that have shiny moving covers, well, yeah, this is one. That's it's cool. Um, yeah, so, book-wise, uh, we've been building, like, to this since, well, we're not building to it. Like, this is one of the first, like, big steps, story arc-wise, from what happened in at the end or the middle of the uh, DC Rebirth issue. There's been little nods and little pieces here and there, and we have some Superman stuff happen with Oz. So this is just another piece adding to that. Uh, this is a four-part series. This is the first part of that four-part. Uh, crosses over with The Flash. So, 21, 21, 22, 22. Um, writer, uh, script for this book is uh, Tom King. Uh, pencils and inks are Jason Fabok. Uh, he's a fantastic artist. Yeah. The way the book opens up, uh, we start in the middle of a hockey game. And we wind up finding out the hockey game is being watched by some of the inmates in Arkham Asylum. And uh, one particular inmate, a very blonde inmate... While she's watching the game, starts to freak out, and she starts talking about this. This is the this is the game they kill him in. They're going to kill him, and uh, they don't really tell you who she is. I'm pretty sure it's Saturn Girl. Yeah, pretty positive. Yeah, yeah. she she says some stuff that well only makes sense for a time traveler. Yeah, they don't nail it down like name tag stars, you know. But yeah. that's who it is. 
Um, so if you missed that part, it would be understandable. You had to know she was in the universe to understand that she's in the universe. Um, <laughs> but yeah, her freak out gets to be pretty extreme and like to where she's being grabbed by the, by the, uh, not, by the orderlies, yeah, like inmates, but that's not the right term. <laughs> orderlies. Uh, we jump from there to rejoin Batman in the Batcave and he has currently got all the screens in the Batcave examining the button. Which, for those of you who don't know what the button is, um, it's the comedian's button. You know, the comedian from The Watchmen. The guy that got thrown out the window at the beginning? Yeah, that guy. And it's in the Batcave somehow. And uh, Batman's been... At, this, at the beginning of this book, he's been researching it, trying to figure out what he can find out about the button. At the same time, he also has the hockey game playing on the lower monitors... And uh, as he's watching the game and listening to the commentary from the uh, reporter that's observing the game, he's got the button in his hands just rolling it in between his knuckles. And the woman reporting on the, the game says, right, they've started a fist fight. And he starts talking about the two particular hockey players and how they have problems in the past. And she starts questioning why the refs haven't got out there yet. And the fight goes on longer and longer. And then eventually... The paramedics are finally out there, pulling the guys apart, and uh, the entire time this fight goes on, it just takes forever for it to get broken up. And the one fella does beat the other guy to death, right there on TV during the game. Batman turns it off prior to the announcement of the death. Um, it throws the button down, it lands up landing next to the uh, Psycho Pirate's mask. And Batman decides he's going to check out. He's going to leave the Batcave. Who knows what he's going to go do. Batman stuff. Have a sandwich, maybe. We don't know. But uh, we wind up seeing the button having an electric arc to the mask. Like a yellow electric arc. And that draws Batman's attention. And from there we get a giant bolt of lightning that fires out of the uh, button. Which reveals a an image of Bruce's dad, Thomas in his full-on Batman gear from Flashpoint. And Bruce reaches for his father, and then we see that his father's not there. And from there, um, he calls the Flash. And he's, and he's asking the Flash, what are you doing? Where are you at? I found something out about the button. And the Flash is like, oh, I'm in the mid middle of fighting all these uh, samurai robots. Yeah. Samuroid. Which is actually like a weird old villain. Yeah. And uh, he's like, well, I need you here right away. And the Flash's like, well, I can be there in a minute. It'll take me a minute to get it done. And then we get this cool element in the book where we see a time clock pop up underneath that. And Bruce tells him, all right. And about that time, we see some lightning flash behind him. And Bruce starts to turn. And he said, you said a minute. Of all people, I didn't expect the Flash to be early. And about that time, uh, we see Batman get socked in the face by dun-dun-dun Professor Zoom. And he relishes off, well, not quite really the reverse, actually. And uh, that sends Batman flying. And that pretty well turned into a fistfight between the two of them. Um, there's a whole lot of dialogue that goes over a whole lot of stuff. And, like, a bunch of mentions to Flashpoint stuff. And if you didn't read Flashpoint, this is going to be a big, like, screw you, you, but... You might, you might be a little confused. Right. But you should go and get a copy of Flashpoint anyways... To fully enjoy this story. Right. So if you, if you haven't read it, do yourself a favor. Get Flashpoint. Right. That makes this whole entire thing make sense right here. Otherwise, you'd be like, I don't understand. 
Yeah. Which, it, you know, happens, I guess. And there's some cool dialogue that maybe you don't even need to right. have in there. Without being aware of Flashpoint. Well, I mean, like, you, you, you might be okay with some of it, but... Yeah. Either direction, you really should probably read that. Yeah, there's, there's no downside. It's not like Final Crisis, where you're like, oh, it's a pain, but you should read it. Right. Uh, this, <laughs> this is Flashpoint. Like, it's actually it's really, really well done, yeah. so... So, anyway, as the fight goes on, um, of course, we see Zoom pull the whole phasing thing where Batman tries to get him and goes right through him. And uh, the entire time, Zoom is, like, taunting Bruce. And uh, in the middle of the fight, we continue to see this clock tick down every second. Zoom eventually throws Batman across the cave and looks like he's getting ready to finish him off. And he's like, are you ready to stop now? And Batman's like, yeah, no, I'm good. And about that time, Zoom sees the letter. And he starts talking to Thomas um, in the idea that he's t- talking to a ghost. And he taunts him about the letter. And I can't believe this is what you did after you killed me. I can't believe this is this is your final thing. Huh. Before the world burned, I can't believe this is what you did. And he shreds the letter, which of course pisses Batman off to no end. He comes back, he, Zoom heads over to Batman and he says, Oh, so you still want to keep fighting? And Batman's he says, You know you can't hit me. And Batman says, yeah, but in order for you to vibrate yourself, something has to be touching the ground. And Zoom gets this weird look on his face, and about that time, Batman decides to put a battering through his boot, through his foot. And that pretty well turns the tide of the fight. Yeah, Bruce uh, gets some good shots in on the old Zoom. Of course, Zoom frees his foot from the battering by pulling it through it, which is crazy. And tells, tells Batman, you do know you can't win. And Batman says, nope, I just have to last 11 seconds. And about that time, we see the clock has hit 11 seconds. And uh, Zoom, of course, punches Batman one more time, grabs the button off the floor, and starts looking at it. And then in a flash, he's gone. But not like a flash running away flash, like a bright zip, blink kind of flash. And he's gone for all the four panels, and he returns, and he's smoking like crazy. Talking about seeing God. We'll leave it there because the next couple page reveal is freaking crazy and awesome. So I'll stop there. That may be too close to the end, but that's that's where I'm gonna stop. Well, and the, there's a particular look to his vanishing that you should you, know, you should, pick you up should the book. recognize. So, yeah, if you've been reading anything to do with action or detective, hmm. I'm pretty sure that those panels of Bruce rolling the pin in his fingers or along his knuckles is uh, directly connected to Watchmen with Ozymandias with one of the coins. Oh, that's a good point. And I yeah. think that's why I think that's why it's there because honestly like when I first seen it the first thought in my head really was like this doesn't make any sense for Batman. This is an evidence he wouldn't be playing around with it like that. Right. Like he's he's very much the detective first. But the the more I thought about it the more I was like, "Oh, I think I think I remember Ozymandias doing that." Yeah. You know, so I think it was actually, like, a direct connection to the, Pretty sure it's the Watchmen story. Yeah. yeah, if it's not, then it's weird. But yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't jump in, so it's... You're... No, it's near for good. Man, score-wise, like, I, I don't know, I'll give it a four. It's really, like, all the books this week have been really strong uh, for this show. Yeah. Um, yeah, I give it a four. I've been super excited about this story, just because I, I like Flash-Batman crossovers a lot, because Batman's, like, my favorite. And then Flash is in there, too, which I have a lot of favorites, I guess, so that doesn't answer anything. But yeah, I don't give it a... I, man, I don't know. Like, uh, I want to give it a four. I think the anticipation for it, I'm super stoked for the next couple issues. I mean, once we get to the four part, I think the next one will be even better. Because like, the end of this one, I was like, holy crap. 
like holy crap kind of end. So and the art's great. I mean, like you said, Fayback's amazing. So and the story, Tom King has really come into his own. Like I'll give you, people were really afraid when Snyder left, but King's held it up, man. It's been good. Uh, but yeah, I man, I gotta get. I'll stop four. Yeah. You, Rob, go. I I'd fall suit. I I think a four is is where I'd rate it. So far, it's it's held up the kind of hype that I think it was going to have. And for this being the kickoff to kind of start telling us more about kind of what Rebirth is about and, and shed some light on this stuff is really good. Um, once again, this is just kind of my own personal opinion thing I'll throw in there. But one of the things that's great about comics is also one of the things that bothers a lot of readers about comics. These kind of cliffhanger endings, what's good about them should be that you your brain starts going, like, what is going on with this? Why did this happen? And you have all these questions that you get to kind of think about that whole month until the book comes back out. So, for me, it was a great ending for that. You know, um, and hopefully it doesn't wind up being, like, the last one that we really had a lot of high expectations for and it wound up being Misselplik. You know, I'm sure it's not going to be that way, but sometimes it's better to have a cliffhanger-style story because, you know, you get to interact your own mind and what, what that story could be more than just having the whole thing in one go. But I can't wait, Rob. <laughs> well, you've got to wait. That's the whole deal. I you know? know. I know. Um, I mean, As me yeah. making fun, it's fine. You ha- people can do whatever you want. I think half the wait is, is what's what's cool about it. And really what, what you should do is if, if you're the kind of person who's just like, I can't wait, form an opinion go online and chat it up because there's, there's forums all over the place yeah on Netflix or go to your you go to your store your real store and talk to the people at the store real people yeah unless you know if you're ordering online I mean you're out of luck I guess uh-huh. you know there's no community for it but I mean that's half the fun is talking to the community and thinking of what are the ideas that they come up with right you know like the last book that we had the idea that Zemo could be talking to the century was this huge mind-blowing kind of thing right you know, I mean, ultimately it wasn't it wasn't the case, but like it made that anticipation, right? Or like with the Joker in Death of the Family, there was all yeah. kinds of stuff that we talked about in that that we wouldn't have had had we not had any of those cliffhanger books, right? That's true. Um, but I, for me, the button seems to be living up to itself, you know. And although I think we all have a suspicion of what the end of that is going to be, sure. So far, it feels. It still feels exciting. I don't feel like I, like I don't need to check it out. Right. Um, and this is a this is a great start off story. Oh yeah. And honestly, for me, like when we had those ticks early in the book with the girl in Arkham screaming about you know something that she's seen in the future and that Superman's not coming in the you know the stuff with the Legion, like that was really cool to me. Heck yeah. Um, I don't know how that's going to play in, but. We'll see. <laughs> That's why you gotta keep reading, Rob. That's true. That's true. All right. Uh, after Rob's preaching, the <laughs> uh, so would you? Uh, what'd you learn today, Rob? I learned that the Flash can even be late when he tells somebody he has a minute to take care of things. Like, like even with his own timeline, he's still late, <laughs> and that, and that Batman counts on him being late. <laughs> That's good. That's very true. They, that yeah, Batman full on admits that he expects him to be late because he's the Flash. Take that, Barry Allen. 
Uh, all right. Uh, what did I learn today, Rob? Uh, you learned that Iron Man actually thinks having lasers shooting out of your nipples is a superpower that would be helpful. <laughs> that is sad but true. I cannot unlearn it. That's true. I mean, he was calling for arms. Yeah. I, he full on says that. And he also says people just like to wear you know, spandex until they thought that they had a sense of justice. Right. So... It's pretty. It's pretty fantastic. Yeah, it's it's either that or that Iron Man just has a iron constitution for for jokes. Even in the <laughs> the most dangerous of moments, he's still talking junk. Oh man! One of, one of those two things is true. <laughs> I'm going to laser nipples. That's that's a. I would say that's a win. Oh my god! Oh, I didn't expect that one. <laughs> oh, I didn't expect that. I expected, but it sure is expected me. It sure as heck expected you. That's right. All right. You get some books to watch, Rob. Call it. Oh gosh. Uh, definitely the rest of the button. Um, what we're going to be seeing in Secret Empire. Actually, like most of the related books for this, ought to be pretty interesting. Um, so Captain America Sam Wilson is going to be getting a costume change, yep. although he's not stepping away from being um, Cap, which is what I thought originally. No. So that's going to be awesome. Justice League of America has actually been really, really good. Um, so it's definitely worth checking out. Lobo. One of my favorite characters for that story. Green Lantern, Hal Jordan has been really, really good. Some interesting stuff happened with Kyle. Yeah, yeah, they're definitely moving stuff ahead. And it feels like this is every bit as strong as, as the Green Lantern stuff that we were seeing before Rebirth. Sure. You know, not that I, I don't really think that, that Green Lantern's fallen down that much, but I, I feel like this is a stronger storyline. Of course, Birthright and now Rose has been really good. There will be a new story for... All-Star Batman. Um, and honestly, if you're if you're big into what's going on with this Rebirth stuff, keep an eye on Batman. Or, I'm sorry, I'm Superman. Because there's been a lot of sneaky stuff in there that I think affects the rest of the world. And I still think Titans is going to be big in that, too. Sure. I think probably the last one for me would be, like, U.S. Avengers. And then, really do, if you liked Rogue One, check out the adapted comic. Because, like, it actually has a lot of cool stuff, and I, I like what they did with it. So, right on. Let's see. I, I would give you plastic from uh, Image. It is super weird, but it was pretty good. Like I, uh, I definitely, I definitely dug it. Of course, Rose. I mean, if you have, if you haven't gotten to pick that thing up yet, you definitely should. I mean, it's if you like fantasy stuff at all, it's fantastic. Uh, plastic comes from a totally different place and is very jacked up, but I think it'll be. Uh, I don't know. The first book is really cool. It's definitely crazy. Savage Things from Vertigo, the uh, the DC imprint, uh, Vertigo, if you don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, Savage Things, issue one and two are out. Three, I want to say, comes out in two weeks. And it's it's also really jacked up, but it's pretty good. Like, it's uh, it's got a very cool, like, espionage thing going on. Short pitch for it is we have a group that, a government group that collected a a whole bunch of children that were identified as having particular problems that serial killers have, and then they were recruited by the government to form a group to go out and terrorize foreign countries during war. Yeah, it, it's pretty It's pretty jacked. And now at this point, of course, they've decided that maybe that's not the best option once they've all grown up. Maybe it wasn't a good idea to build a super assassin team of serial killers. You know, now they're not cute kids anymore. It's dangerous. Uh, but yeah, so far it's been great. Like, it's uh, it's only a couple issues in. 
story-wise, the art's pretty good. The story is definitely interesting. Uh, I easily see it turn into a movie. But it's pretty good. Uh, so I dig that. Uh, I feel like there was something else that was coming out from Image that I was really stoked about. I mean, Seven to Eternity is still really good. I mean, that it hasn't changed. It's fantastic. Rick Remender is awesome. Um, Black Science is still good, which is also another Rick Remender. Go figure. And, man, I feel like there's one other one I was really like, this looks freaking cool. But now I don't remember, and there's a whole catalog full of things, so I don't have any idea what I was talking about or thinking about. So I'm going to stop there, because that's, you know, not that many, and I don't really have any clue what's happening. Uh, anything else, Rob? No, I think, I think we're pretty much, pretty much All good. Right. I mean, that's, that's pretty much where we're at. All right, so. it's the key? Yes. Key! 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 Key!